If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and we will be in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6 this week. And once you have found that verse, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. We will be reading uh, all of verse uh, 20 through 26, although we will not cover that much text this week. I just want to read them all so we can have it in context of what we're going to be studying. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we uh, (laughs) embark on our study of the Beatitudes and uh, the Sermon on the the Plain here in Luke's Gospel, I think it's fitting for us to uh, keep in mind, as always, the full context of what we are studying. And because we're going to be moving through bite-sized portions of this text, uh, I think it's, it's wise for us to always, as we're reading, uh, keep in mind the full context, the full thrust of uh, the sermon that Jesus delivers. Now, you will remember that last week uh, we studied kind of the summary of this uh, day of teaching. Verse 17 through 19 is Jesus uh, with the crowds coming to him, healing people, teaching them. And I mentioned at that uh, occurrence last week that we would not be getting into what he was teaching because we're going to spend the next several weeks studying that uh, in depth as we move through the rest of chapter 6. And so true to form, here we are in chapter 20, or sorry, verse 20 and verse 21 of chapter 6. And we're just going to be looking at those first two blessings this week. Uh, The blessed are the poor uh, and blessed are you who are hungry. And uh, I just want to kind of address the elephant in the room a little bit here because uh, you might be familiar with these sayings and you might have a little bell going off in the back of your head and say something like, I, kn- I know these statements, I know where they're from, but I don't ever remember reading them in Luke's gospel. The place where I remember seeing phrases like this is in Matthew's gospel. And if that is an alarm bell that's going off in your head, rest assured you are correct. Uh, these same kinds of statements are seen in Matthew chapter 5, uh, in the more famous list of what we call the Beatitudes. And when you consider the Beatitudes, most likely you're going to bring that list to mind. And that's not a wrong thing to consider when, it's, when we say, uh, blessed are you who are poor. Uh, Matthew will say something like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And for example, when Luke says, blessed are you who are hungry now, uh, Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. And so then there's probably an obvious question on the front end, which is, are they first off the same teachings? Are they the, the same event that is being recorded? And then how do we account for the discrepancy? And then secondly, is there anything major at stake if there's anything different in the kinds of teachings that are present in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel? So I want to address that on the front end and then we can move into the text of Luke. So the first thing to consider is we've already seen several points in Luke's gospel where if you were to consider the other synoptics, Matthew and Mark, and you were to evaluate those things against one another, you would notice that Luke either includes or omits details that are either included or omitted in the other Gospels. For example, most famously when we were looking at Matthew, or sorry, Luke chapter 6, uh, when we were considering Jesus and the Sabbath, when he says, for example, to the Pharisees, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, that's his conclusion when he refutes them. But if you were to look at Matthew's Gospel and that same series of events, you would notice that Matthew includes several other details before he comes to the conclusion that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And the question we can ask is, well, are these two different events, totally different events, 
or rather are they dealing with the same kind of content? And I think it's probably safe to say that when you look at those narrative accounts, it's easy for us to say, well, Matthew included details that Luke didn't include, and we can reconcile that discrepancy. Now, what gets more difficult is when those accounts get shorter and those statements get shorter, and the discrepancies seemingly become larger and larger uh, by account of them being shorter. For example, if you were to compare the statement in Luke, blessed are you who are poor, that seems fundamentally different than a statement like, blessed are those of you who are poor in spirit. It seems that Matthew has put a caveat or a qualifier on the blessing in a way that Luke does not. And you can say the same thing about being hungry. Luke says, blessed are you who are hungry now, whereas Matthew says, blessed are those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. And the question is, has Matthew interpreted the sermon in a way that was not intended by Jesus? Or has Luke somehow shortened and now generalized the sermon in a way that wasn't intended by Jesus? And that is the really second part of that question, which is, is there anything at stake if there's a difference between the sermon in Matthew and the sermon in Luke? Now, it might surprise many of you to know that uh, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. We've been seeing him do these kinds of things all over the place. He travels through Jerusalem, Judea, and he's preaching over and over about the kingdom of God. He's announcing his gospel. And like any good preacher who has a good sermon, he's going to probably repeat the same kind of content on multiple occasions. So it's not difficult to conceptualize that reality. And if that's strange to you, consider that many of you have gone through school uh, where you had either a college professor or a high school teacher and who would maybe deal with a certain lesson or a topic to your class if you were a morning class. And then if you were to go to that same lesson in the afternoon, for whatever reason you decided to do that, you would hear the exact same content presented in roughly the same order, with the same slideshow on the screen, with the same homework given as a handout. And that wouldn't be strange to us because the content is the same, it's just being repeated on different occasions. And so it's not at all improbable that Luke records one of these events, one of these teaching events, and Matthew records an alternative kind of teaching event, both which have the exact same content within them. That's not at all a strange occurrence. It's also possible that they're recording the exact same event and Luke just, choose to, just chooses to omit certain things that Matthew included. And by the way, both of them are summarizing the content of the sermon. And we know that because if you were to take and read all of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it would take you maybe 8 to 10 minutes to read that. And if you were to read Luke's account, it may take you two or three minutes to read that. And it is unlikely that Jesus only preached for eight to 10 minutes with all those people there. It, it seems more likely that he preached for a whole day as he was healing, as he was interacting. So both of them present a summary or a condensed version of the events. What might be more interesting to note is if you were to examine them side by side and you were to ask the question, what are the kinds of things that Matthew chooses to include that Luke chooses to omit? you would notice that the kinds of things Luke leaves out are things that explicitly draw on Jewish law. So if you were to look, for example, at the sermon in Matthew, you would see that Jesus says in Matthew's sermon, uh, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. He's drawing from the Jewish law, the rabbinical interpretation of that law, and then he's going to apply his own rabbinical interpretation to that, the correct interpretation of that saying. You will find that nowhere in Luke's occasion of these events, and that's because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience who would have no foundation of rabbinical teaching. And so when he has to explain rabbinical teaching, he'll do so, but when it's not necessary, which it isn't in this case, he's gonna just omit those discrepancies because it would be too cumbersome for a Gentile audience to have to first learn the Jewish teaching and then refute the Jewish teaching and then understand the true teaching. He's just gonna go straight to what the true teaching and the understanding is. So he doesn't, he doesn't leave himself bogged down with those kinds of things. So we, we want to consider the audience that Luke is writing to, and we, can, and we can rightly understand then what he is teaching us, and it's no different really in content than that of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see that as we move through these texts. Now, that being said, that elephant out of the way, let's dive into the text of Luke, and we can begin to examine what exactly does Jesus mean in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, when he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Of God. The backbone of interpreting, of interpreting this text correctly is understanding what it means when Jesus says, blessed. Now, there's not really another category of this kind of literature in any of the rest of the New Testament. For example, you can think about narrative, which is when a story is told. 
And we have narrative all over the Gospels. For example, Jesus has people come to him. He interacts with them in a certain way. It's a narrative telling of the events, which has an introduction of content. It has a climax and a conflict, and then it has usually a resolution. That's a narrative series of events. Much of the Gospel is recorded in narrative. You might think, for example, of the letters, the epistle genre of teaching which is recorded for all of Paul's writings and much of the writings, for example, of James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, those are epistles. They're not in narrative structure generally. They're very tightly wound segments of thought. They're very didactic. They're very teachable sections of thought. That's a different genre than what the Gospels are written in. And you can think, for example, of the standout genre in the Gospels that we have, or sorry, in the New Testament, which is Revelation. Revelation is not a narrative. Revelation is not a didactic letter, except for the first little bit of it. Most of Revelation exists in what we would call apocalyptic literature, which means it deals with the end times and it's a revelation that's difficult to understand. And to get a flavor of that in the Old Testament, you'd have to go to, for example, Ezekiel in his early chapters where he describes angels with with wings and spokes and eyes and they're roaming throughout the earth and there's seven of them and it's very strange. And that's very much what you get when you get into Revelation. Now the genre that we're dealing with here is not narrative, it's not an epistle, it's not Uh, apocalyptic literature. The closest thing we have to this in the Old Testament is, for example, the wisdom literature passages. You can think, for example, of Psalm 1 or the book of Proverbs that deals not with explicit promises, but more with general descriptive observations about the kind of person who lives a blessed or a good life. And this is not a a vague spiritual kind of blessing. This is an actual on-the-ground real kind of blessing that someone experiences. And so to draw out the correct understanding of blessedness, I need to give you a caveat on the front end. If you were to read your English Bible and you were just looking at all the times blessed occurs, there are some times when the word is used in context where it deals with someone giving a blessing to somebody else. You can think early in Luke's gospel where Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed are you Mary and blessed be the fruit of your womb. That's not the same use of the term that we see here when Jesus said, blessed are the poor. When Elizabeth says blessed in that context, she's giving a blessing or saying, I hope the favor of God is upon you, Mary, and I hope the favor of God is upon your womb. And that's the kind of blessing that Elizabeth gives to Mary in that occurrence. You can think, for example, in the Old Testament, where Moses says to the people of Israel, blessed are you if you follow the commandments that are written in this law. And the opposite of that would be a curse. Cursed are those of you who would not follow the commandments written in the book of this law. The opposite of the blessing, for example, in Luke's gospel, when you say, blessed are you, Mary, you could think if she were to flip that, she would say, curse are you, Mary. That would be the flip or the opposite kind of statement. That's not the same dynamic as we see here when Jesus announces blessings, and the opposite is not a curse, but in this case, it's a woe, which has a slight difference. A woe is a descriptive kind of statement of someone who is on their way to receive a curse. And a blessedness, in this case, is a descriptive kind of statement that deals with someone who is going to receive the favor of God. It's not describing the favor of God on them. It's describing the kind of life that they live in if the favor of God already exists in them. So to illustrate this, and I know that might be a little confusing, to illustrate this, I want to look to two texts in the Old Testament that I think might help us understand that difference. And then we can move more appropriately into understanding these blessings here. So the first text I want to look at is in Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6, you have what's called in the English Bible, or if you have an English standard version of the Bible, it might read as a subhead, Aaron's blessing. It's Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. And this is a benediction or a blessing that you would give to a person. And it goes like this. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is what we would call a benediction or a blessing. It is a parting wish from the Levitical priest or Aaron to the people of Israel saying to them, May the Lord's favor be upon you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his favor be upon you. That's the kind of statement you get here from Aaron's blessing. And I want to contrast that with something else that we see 
For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And that is the second text I want to look at in the Old Testament to help us understand this. Deuteronomy 33. It's right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And it will be verse 29 of Deuteronomy 33. And this is the same word that we have in our English Bible as blessed, which shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 29, it reads, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. And now in Deuteronomy 33:29, we have a different kind of blessing statement. And this is not someone wishing the blessing of God on a person, but rather it's describing the nation of Israel's state of existence as a people who has received the blessing of God. They're the kind of people who are described as blessed. It's not a wish for the blessing of God or the favor of God to be upon them, but it describes them as existing under the favor of God. They are a happy people because God has chosen to put his favor on them. But what you see is they're happy, not just because God has chosen to put his favor on them, but because of the actual lived benefits of God's favor upon them. For example, they are saved by the Lord. They are protected by the Lord. Their enemies will be put as a footstool under their feet and they're going to conquer all of these nations. That is the lived reality of a nation that has received the favor of God. But it's not the favor that it's describing, it's the actual benefits that result from that favor. And I need to nuance that difference because if we look at it as someone getting the favor of God, we might misunderstand the Beatitudes and say that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, he says the way you get the favor of God is by becoming poor. And we don't need to make this a legalistic entrance requirements kind of teaching. It is not, if you do this, you will have the favor of God. But it describes the kind of person who the favor of God rests upon. And to get the closest understanding of this in the Old Testament, the most thorough treatment of the Sermon on the Mount in the Old Testament, we need to look to a familiar psalm for many of us, Psalm chapter 1. And if you were to look at Psalm chapter 1, and we're going to read it in its entirety, Psalm chapter 1 is a condensed version, even more condensed than Luke's version, of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. In fact, if you were to look beyond the, the blessings, beyond the woes, and into the rest of the teaching of Luke's Sermon on the Mount and into Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, you would notice the stark overlap between that teaching and Psalm 1. It is likely that Jesus is really in his Sermon on the Mount expositing the truth contained in Psalm chapter 1. And it goes like this. And you'll notice that same word show up that we've been looking at. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chafe that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, if you're reading Psalm 1, it seems rather obvious that it's not telling you about how you obtain the blessing of God. It's not saying, study God's law and meditate on it, and then you will find the favor of God, and then God's favor will rest upon you. It's not a works-based earning of blessedness. What it instead is doing is describing a kind of person who has the favor of God on them and who experience a full life and who experiences a blessed life. And the description of the reality is that the person who experiences the best life on earth is the kind of person who is rooted in God's law, the kind of person who is steadfast in understanding the truth of God's word and who lives on it and who meditates on it. It's a description of a person who is living the good life. It is not someone who's earning God's favor. And you'll notice some parallels between this and the Sermon on the Mount in both Matthew and Luke's Gospel. For example, they will draw on positive affirmations of goodness and negative connotations of people who are wicked or are doing poorly, the woes. You will also notice that in both the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and Luke's sermon, 
you have this parallel nature of the trees. For example, you have in the psalm here, there is a tree that is planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season. And both Matthew and Luke deal with the image of a tree bearing fruit and the kind of fruit that it bears. Because Jesus is no, no doubt reflecting upon this psalm as he draws out the teaching of his sermon. And so with that being said, a right understanding of blessing, I think we can go back into Luke's text, Luke chapter 6. And now we can start asking the question, what exactly does Jesus mean when he describes the person who has received the blessing of God as someone who is poor? Because that seems very contradictory. It might make sense to us, for example, in Psalm chapter 1, when we say the person is blessed if they meditate on God's law and they delight in it and they, they're steadfast in it, they're rooted, they're grounded. It might seem different to us, though, when Luke says, blessed are you who are poor, and we just stop there. But we don't stop there. Because he goes on to explain that it's not just the fact that they're poor that makes them in a state of blessing, but rather it's the fact that for theirs, or for yours, he's speaking specifically to them, for yours is the kingdom of God. The thing that makes the first half of the statement true, blessed are the poor, is the thing that is explained in the second half, which is, for yours is the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God was not theirs, they would not be blessed. They would just be poor. But because the kingdom of God is theirs, they're not just poor, they are the blessed poor. They're the kind of poor who aren't actually impoverished in any real way because they're the kind of poor people who are blessed by God. And when scripture speaks of the poor, in the Greek language, when you speak of the poor, that really only has material poverty in mind. But remember, Jesus is not a Greek speaker. He speaks Aramaic. And so when he uses the word poor, he does not have in mind only material poverty. And this is true, even drawing from Luke's gospel, you're gonna see this. He has beyond that in mind, some, someone who is in spiritual poverty as well. A good way to summarize this in English would be, it's not just a poor person, it's a pious poor person. It's someone who's poor and reliant on God for their daily need. This is not someone who's poor because they refuse to work. Scripture elsewhere will teach us that if someone will not work, let him not eat. They will not provide for their family, they're worse than an unbeliever. It's not describing the kind of poor person who doesn't have money because they refuse to work. It's describing a poor person who is poor because of circumstances out of their control, and therefore, they are reliant on God, and therefore, they are blessed. Not because they're poor, but because they're poor and their poverty drives them to a reliance on God. It is a pious, poor person. And I'm going to teach you that this is not just something I'm coming up with. In Luke's gospel, he's building this into the cake already. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 1, he, he puts it in as early as Luke chapter 1, and I want to look at verse 48 of Luke chapter 1. Mary is uh, singing her song of praise to the Lord. She's reflecting on all of his goodness. And she says in verse 48 of Luke 1, For he, being God, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now, from now on all generations will call me blessed. There's that same word. And she's not saying she's blessed because she's humble. She's saying ble she's blessed because the Lord has looked on her humble estate and has given her a kind of favor which goes beyond physical wealth within this world. And she expands on that because she says in verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. Those are the kind of people who are not just poor, but poor and humble and almost broken by their poverty and therefore reliant on God in their brokenness. In verse 53, to contrast that, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now that's Mary saying something before Jesus teaches it, and we're going to get there in verse 21, but I just want to put that in your mind as we keep moving through this. These are all kind of dealing with the same reality. The poor person is someone who is not just materially impoverished, but they're also reliant on God because they've been broken by their lack of resources. There is a kind of poor person, a kind of person who's impoverished, whose poverty does not drive them to a reliance on God, 
And therefore, they're not a blessed poor person. They're simply an indignant person. And we know people like that. And you might be able to think of somebody like that. They're poor. And they're not broken by it. They're not relying on other people in it. But instead, they've decided, I can't trust anyone else. I can only rely on myself. And therefore, they're not broken by their lack of resources. The kind of person in mind here who is experiencing material poverty is the kind of person who gets broken, humbled by their poverty, by their lack of resources, and says, I need to go to someone outside of myself for resource. And so in there, you have someone who's reliant on God for their sustenance, for their daily food. You can think about how God broke the people of Israel who were slaves when they were led out of Egypt, but who were consistently required to be reliant on God for their daily food, even for water. And the kind of state that that drove out of Israel, the kind of reality that that created is the most faithful generation of Israelites to date. They're the kind of people who with Joshua are raised under that condition and go into the promised land and for a whole generation are faithful. There's not that much drama in the book of Joshua because it's just faithfulness, 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 faithfulness. Because the people who grew up under the daily need of God feeding them and the daily need of God watering them and the daily need of God protecting them, they were driven to dependence on God. That's different than the kind of Israelites we find in the book of Hosea, who are still in need. They still don't have stuff. They're being oppressed by the false gods. They're being oppressed by the Canaanites. But instead of turning back to God and being reliant on him, they're just going to keep going into their sin. And he, he calls them out. He says, I gave you the wine and the oil. And when I took it away, you didn't come back to me for it. Instead, you pursued the false gods for the kind of provision. And instead of giving you that, I'm going to take it away and I'm going to keep it away from you. Just to prove how dependent you are on me. And here you have the blessed poor, the kind of poor person who is the favor of God is on them. And we describe their existence as being blessed, not because they're poor, but because of the second half of that statement, because yours is the kingdom of God. That's the key. Yours is the kingdom of God. Notice how the word is, is unique in this text. If you were to read verse 21 uh, and you were to see, it says, for you shall be satisfied. That's a future-minded idea. You'll read the next line. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Future-minded idea. But blessed are you who are poor, for yours is. That's a current idea, a current statement. Yours is the kingdom of God right now. And that's the kind of truth of the kingdom of God. And Jesus has been teaching so far that the kingdom of God is both present on the ground for the people, it's accessible to them, and it has a future ultimate coming reality. But in a real sense, it's accessible now. And for the people who are poor and relying on God, it already is theirs. It is a current state of being for those people. And we would say that if someone currently has the kingdom of God, they possess a kind of wealth that you can't really put your arms around in this world, but they are wealthy. They might be materially poor, but they are all kinds of wealthy when it comes to kingdom-minded things. And to illustrate that, we have to go a couple of chapters ahead in Luke's gospel to Luke 16. So if you'll turn with me there, I'm just going to summarize the text, and you can look at it if you want, in Luke 16. It deals with uh, the rich man and Lazarus. It's Luke 16, uh, verse 19 through uh, verse 31. And what it says in this text, and I'm just going to summarize this, There's a person who's completely materially impoverished. They have no material wealth. So much so that they beg for scraps at the table of another rich person. And there's another person in the story, uh, uh, the rich person, diabetes, some translations will say. And he has all the material wealth you could possibly want. He has rich people dining at his table. He has food. He has no want. He has no need. And the, the poor person dies and the rich person dies. Both pass on into the afterlife. And in the afterlife, Lazarus, the person who was completely impoverished in this life, commands a kind of wealth that the rich person could never have dreamed of commanding. And that is that Lazarus is served by angels. And he's he's held by Abraham. And he's cared for by all the hosts of heaven. 
And we can say that if that was always true about Lazarus' life, that he was always in a state of blessing. It wasn't just he became blessed after he died. If we look at the sum and total of his life, we can say that he was actually always wealthy in a kind of way that material wealth could never have grasped. And so is true of the rich man. We can say that while he might have had financial wealth, he was always poor and indignantly poor. And so poor, in fact, that no matter how much wealth he had in this life, it could never have overcome the gap for all of eternity. He's, he's so poor because he doesn't realize what he's missing. He doesn't realize the kind of wealth that he has shortchanged. And he's, he's, re, he's really objectively poor, but not a blessed poor, the indignant kind of poor person. And so reflecting on that total statement of Luke's gospel, we can say that what Luke says is no different really than what Matthew says, because Matthew says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who admit that they have nothing in this life to offer, and they are reliant on someone else for their spiritual wealth, and they go to God for that wealth. That's the kind of blessed poor person. And Luke has all those ideas in mind as he comes with a total revelation of what it means to be poor, because he's been building this up for us in his gospel. And you'll see that same reality is true in the second line in verse 21, when it says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now you can't say that a hungry person is blessed unless the second half of that statement follows. You can't say that a hungry person is doing too well unless there is an actual reality in the future that's not a, a pipe dream, that's an actual tangible reality in which they will be satisfied beyond their wildest dreams. And if that is true, then we can really say in this life that they are blessed. They exist with a kind of wealth and a kind of satisfaction that transcends any kind of pain and affliction and persecution that this life could bring to them. And the reality is for the disciples, the, the poverty and the hunger, those are not just theoretical ideas. The disciples are legitimately poor. They don't have jobs. Most of them have left their jobs. They don't have places to sleep. They don't have food coming regularly. So they're likely hungry all the time. They're likely poor for their entire time on earth. And we know that after Jesus ascends, that they're poor even beyond his ascension until most of them are martyred. And the whole time, you might be tempted to feel sorry for them in their physical state. If you don't look at this with spiritual eyes, with eternity in mind. Because they, can, they possess a kind of wealth that we could never even dream. And they possess a kind of satisfaction that transcends hunger. And just to point out that when Luke uses the term hungry, it doesn't just have physical hunger in mind. I want to point to you both before this and after this in Jesus' teaching where he teaches on hunger. And Jesus loves using the term hunger to mean way more than just physical hunger. For example, if you want to look with me earlier in Luke's gospel, just to Luke chapter 4, just flip a couple chapters over. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's, he's physically hungry. He's been tempted, or he's, he's been led out into the wilderness. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And then in verse 2, it says, For 40 days he's being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry, physically hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And what Jesus says in verse 4 is astounding. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now what does he mean when he says that? He, he means that there's a kind of hunger that goes deeper than physical hunger. And it goes into the spiritual realm. And he's saying that man can't live by bread alone. Man needs to live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what Jesus is not saying is a promise that if you stop eating bread, you're going to still stay alive for some reason, if you stop eating food. It's not that kind of statement. It's a wisdom statement. It says that you would be a wise person if you recognize that physical life transcends beyond the taking in of calories and the taking in of water. It goes into a real deep sense of spiritual sustenance. You need spiritual vitality in order to actually live. And the wise person recognizes this and they say, you know what? Man does not live by bread alone. Man lives on the word of God. And that's a wise person. That's a blessed person who recognizes that. 
the kind of person who experiences physical hunger and the whole time they're, they're just desiring the deeper food of the Spirit of God. And this is not just true of Jesus' teaching. By the way, in uh, John chapter 6, if you wanted to turn there, he says all kinds of stuff that relates to eating and drinking. And he says, my body is true food and my, my blood is true drink. And you can misunderstand that and take him at face value and not really understand what he's getting at. Or you could recognize that he's using hunger and thirst in the same kind of way he uses it earlier in John's gospel in chapter 3. And later when Paul teaches the, the Corinthian church, and he says to them, you know, the whole time I was teaching you, I was giving you milk. And I couldn't give you meat to eat because you just weren't ready for it. Now, he's not talking about giving them milk and giving them meat. What he's talking about is giving them light, easy to digest doctrine, or heavy, robust, harder to digest truth. And he's equating those to two kinds of food. And so the, the language of hunger, as it relates to doctrine and the teaching of God, and desire for it or, or hunger for it is, is true throughout all of the New Testament. And it's not just true in the New Testament. You can see that kind of reality in the Old Testament as well. But just for our purposes, in the New Testament, you can see that as, as the case. So it, it shouldn't be strange for us that Paul, who, who was taught by Jesus, his doctrine, and then Luke, who studied under Paul, when Luke records the Sermon on the Mount, he just cuts it off at those who are hungry. Because for Luke, there's a whole kit of what hunger means that goes beyond just physical hunger. Matthew explains it further. He says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But Luke doesn't need that because he, he's, he's built and founded on a theology that has this robust view of hunger that goes way beyond what just physical hungry means. Hunger for Luke means hunger for righteousness. It means hunger for something that you can't obtain within yourself. And it's, it's, it's worthy to note, you cannot fake being hungry. It is a kind of natural drive that just, it just it's, a, it's an innate thing. If you're hungry, you're hungry. And it's, it's, it, it's a, this natural drive towards something to consume. And so you can't make yourself hungry, but when you're hungry, when that hunger is inside of you, you're the kind of blessed person because you recognize that there's something that you need that you don't have as opposed to being someone who's satisfied, who thinks that they don't need anything else. The hungry person longs for something that they don't have. There's this innate natural drive towards something that they don't have. And the person who's satisfied is not like that. They don't, they don't hunger for anything. They don't, they don't feel like they need anything. Hunger for Luke describes someone who is hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that goes way beyond what they could obtain. And they recognize their need and they recognize their gap and their miss and so their, their drive and their natural desire is for that thing that they don't have. They're hungry for it. In, in, even in our terms, we, we use the term hunger uh, for someone who's hungry for success. You know, they want it. They're getting after it. They're, they're hungry for fame. They're hungry for fortune. They're hungry for wealth. We use the term hunger to describe that kind of innate desire for something that's unquenchable. And so it is here when Luke describes it. He's, Those who are hungry now in this life, who recognize that they're in need right now, those are the kind of people who will be satisfied. In the future, they shall be satisfied because they're not gonna be satisfied with anything this world is gonna throw their way. They're gonna to continue to hunger and hunger and hunger until they recognize that the only thing that can fill that hunger, fill that void, is an eternal kind of righteousness, an eternal kind of food, an eternal kind of reality. That's the only thing that can satisfy that hunger. The person who's hungry in that way is the person who will be satisfied. It's the kind of person who's been blessed by God in such a way as they recognize that everything this life has to offer is completely unsatisfactory. And there's only one thing that will satisfy in its eternity. It's the reality of the coming kingdom of God when it's fully realized in that place they'll be satisfied, but not now. And if you're a Christian, this should be true of you. You should hunger and desire a kind of righteousness that you deep down know that you could never attain. And if you ponder this reality, it should be a mystery to you that that's ever even possible in eternity. That you could be someone who exists without sin. You could be someone who stands before a holy God completely fine, not in any need or any want. If that's, a, if that's an insane idea to you, I think you have a really good grasp of what it means to actually be satisfied in the future to actually have no want. 
Because the gap that you recognize is, is hunger. If you recognize how short you are of the holy standard, you recognize the kind of hunger that you need to go and to seek. And Jesus says, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks will receive, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is talking about pursuing something that goes beyond this life. The kind of person who is consistent in their seeking. That's the kind of person who will be satisfied in the future. To give you uh, an idea of how you can be satisfied, how you, how you can be filled, there's a text in Ezekiel, and I'm not going to have you turn there. It's Ezekiel chapter 3. And what happens in this passage is, uh, as part of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry, the first thing he's told to do is to consume a scroll. He's told to eat it. And when he eats the scroll, he describes it as being delicious. It's, it's like honey. It's so good. And the scroll doesn't fill him, but it kind of satiates his hunger in a way that drives him into further obedience to God. And now he's preaching and teaching the words that were contained in that scroll. And the whole idea there is, if you're hungry for the right things, the right things taste satisfactory to you. The right things taste good to you. So if you're a Christian and you're hungering for righteousness and you're thirsty for that kind of thing, the thing that tastes sweet to you is like what tastes sweet to Ezekiel. It's the word of God. It's the scroll of the truth of God's word, which you just want to chew over. You want to taste it. You want to feast on it. And you want to continue to recognize that even in this lifetime, you can saturate yourself for an entire lifetime of study in the word, an entire lifetime of prayer to God, and you would still want more. And that's good. That's the kind of hunger that makes you a blessed person. Not because if you do that, if you search God's word all the time, that you become favorable to God, but rather because the kind of person who has the favor of God on them, who exists in a blessed state, is the kind of person who recognizes the hunger that drives them towards God's word. It describes the reality of being blessed. The blessed person is the one who recognizes their shortcomings. The blessed person is the one who recognizes their need, their want, and who seeks the right source for those answers. Not themselves, because if they're poor and they seek themselves, they're actually an indignant poor person. If they're hungry and they seek their own self for satisfaction, they actually don't really have the kind of hunger that drives them to their knees. But if they're impoverished in the kind of way that they recognize they can't fill it within themselves, and if they're hungry in the kind of way that they recognize they need to go outside of themselves for satisfaction, that's the kind of person who Jesus is describing in these verses. He says, blessed are you, if that is you. Blessed are you who are hungry now. And that now is the, the consistent reality of this life. It's the reality of our entire existence in this world. That's, that whole time is describing the now. If you're hungry like that now, you will, in the future, be satisfied. Because of that hinge verse earlier, because yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a sure coming reality for the people of God. For his people, the blessedness is not some future off hope that they long for. It's a right now existence that's real. So Christian, don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't feel bad when the world, as we're going to see in the next coming weeks, scorns you and mocks you and hates you. Don't feel bad for yourself when you don't have a paycheck coming in next week. Don't feel bad for yourself when you go a day without food because you just couldn't eat. Because all of those things are just material blessings. There's a kind of thing that goes way beyond that. There's a kind of thing that's so much deeper than that, so much more satisfying, so much more lovely than all of those things. And so as Christians, we need to recognize our reality as both a future hope and a present blessedness. We exist as the blessed people of God. Not just when we die, we become blessed. But right now, the blessing of God is a reality for believers. It's right now. And that's, that's, that's a good thing for us to know because I think sometimes we can become so complacent and so longing for the future that we just can't even enjoy the current moment. But that's just not a good understanding of what Jesus is saying here. You can hunger for the future food while currently being blessed. You can be completely materially impoverished and be future blessed. And that future blessing extends into the now. And all of it is an all-comprehensive mystery that we describe as the already and the not yet. We are already justified before God, and yet we hunger and thirst for a kind of righteousness that can only be realized in glory. 
But that kind of justification we have now makes us a blessed person because we have a right standing before God. It makes us blessed. And if we don't have any material things, let's say, for example, you can't be wealthy in the way that you're wealthy now. Let's say for a split second, as crazy as this might sound, the government turns against Christians and we become like the first century church who were cast out of their jobs and who were scorned of their careers and who lost all right standing of a high academia. Many of the church fathers were brilliant men and who were scorned by their peers because of the fact that they believed this Christ. And they were more brilliant than any of their philosophers. But imagine for a moment you're scorned by people like that. And you can't have a job, so you can't put food on the table, and so you're poor. And you, and you can't put food on the table, so you're hungry. And you reflect on the circumstances of your life, the, the circumstances that you're experiencing, and you ask yourself the question, is this actually good? Or do I just have this future thing to hope for? And you can say that, yes, you both have the future thing to hope for, and the current thing is good. The current existence is a blessed existence because it exists on the spectrum of a real coming reality that is so sure, that is so fixed, that is so true, that it would be a really short-sighted thing to say that only in the future will you be blessed, that only in the future will you be in a good place. Because if you think about it like that, you don't have a comprehensive picture of the beauty of the kingdom. It's coming and it still needs to come in full and we recognize that there's still a longing in our heart for that future coming. But the reality is that Christ has already died on the cross. He's already made us right before the Father. He's already made us aware of our sins through his spirit. He's already made us dependent on him. And if all those things are true, there's a kind of blessed existence that you have right now that is a wealth that is beyond what the world can experience. It's a, it's a kind of satisfaction that goes beyond what the world can as ascribe to. And yes, this, this does extend to material poverty and material hunger. And those might become realities for us someday. And if you go to the foreign mission field and you're hungry because of a long day's work and you don't have food and you're doing the gospel and you're going out there and you're sharing Christ with people and you're hungry, are you really feeling bad for yourself? Or are you recognizing the fact that there is this coming reality that is so sure that there's nothing that you could want in this life? I think that this is important for us to, to know because in, in the American church, we, we believe this lie that if things are going well for you in this world, that somehow that's a sure sign of God's favor in your life. And if things are going poor for you, somehow that's a sure sign that God is upset with you. And the reality is he could be happy with you or he could be upset with you, regardless of whether you're doing good or doing bad. The, the reality is not your, your circumstances in this life. And I think that that's important for us to know because there, there's probably going to come a day when the circumstances might change for all of us. There's probably going to come a day when we're not able to put food on the table because we've been kicked out of a job because we decided to stand for what God says in his word. There might be a reality one day where we're hungry and on the street and alone because maybe we decided to answer the call of God and go overseas somewhere to take the gospel to the nations. And if we reflect on the circumstances of our life in that moment, we have to, we have to say we're not actually in that much want. We're not actually in that much need because we have the coming kingdom as a reality. And that's something that we have a wealth that we're trying to get out to the world. Because if you know people who are materially wealthy, they're actually in a really dangerous state because they don't recognize their need. If you know someone who's satisfied in this life, they, they don't recognize their want, their hunger. And so they're not pursuing anything. And that's the kind of person who's in a more dangerous place. That's the kind of person who is being described later in Luke's gospel as woe. Woe to that person because they don't realize the kind of danger that they're in. But the kind of person who's poor now, who's hungry now, they recognize that they have a future hope and a future reality, and so right now, they're in a good space. And I think that's encouraging for us as we reflect on that uh, in God's word. And one more thing I, I wanna say about that uh, is in Isaiah 55, I just wanna close with this. Isaiah 55 talks about this uh, reality of, of real wealth and real satisfaction. And it's just verses one and two that I want to read, but just hear these words and hear how good they are. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
and you labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This is Isaiah talking about the future coming reality of God's kingdom. And he says that there's a kind of satisfaction, a kind of wealth that is so, so real, so tangible that we just, we can't feel sorry for ourselves in this life. We just have to reflect on the good graciousness and the blessing of God that is sure. In the same way that, the, that in Deuteronomy they can say, happy are you, O Israel, because the Lord is your God. He's not the Canaanites' God. He's not the God of the pagans. He's your God. So you're the happy people. In the same way as the church, we can say we are the happy, blessed people. We are the kind of people who have God as our God. He's not anyone else's. He's for the church. He's for his people. And so we are of all people most to be blessed, most to be happy, most to be satisfied. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts to make us aware of our need. Make us aware of how desperately in need of you we are and how recognizing that need is not a bad thing. Lord, I pray that you would become real to us in such a way that we would actually say we have no want, that we could be content and we could be satisfied. Not because of what we have in this life, being satisfied now, but being satisfied in the assurance of the coming kingdom, the assurance of the righteousness that's been purchased for us, the assurance of the coming reality. Lord, I thank you for the fact that those things are all true. Not one thing in your word is said without purpose. And these words have been said today for our encouragement. Lord, I thank you for, for that encouragement. Lord, we ask that you would allow us to continue in our worship of you in a way that honors you and glorifies your name and brings due praise to the name that is above every name. We ask these things in your holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.